Lord, I'm aggravated with technical stuff. Mm, I'm so hacked right now, and I confess that before this people. It's something so grand and so sweet. It could have any obstacle at all. And I know that you can redeem the time, and I pray that the rest of this morning as we continue in sermon and then we continue with the Lord's Supper and more opportunities to sing at the top of our lungs, I pray that you will be glorified and enjoyed. Thankful for the men and women that serve in this ministry of music. So grateful for the standard of excellence that they pour themselves into it. And the people that serve on the soundboard and all the team that's involved with that. I marvel from week to week at the gifting that you've drawn into this body. It just blows my mind. At the creativity, at the gifting, the worship and song that's so... really centered on you. It just seems to not focus on any particular uh, group of people or any particular person. Just each week, these folks seem to be out of the way, way, and it's just beautiful to be part of it. Lord, I'm grateful. I pray that anything that I may have shared this morning, any angst that I may have felt, that it not get in the way of the rest of the time that we spend together enjoying you. Lord, in these next few minutes, too, I want to pray for another church in town. I want to pray for Rance Moore. I'm thankful for the opportunity to meet him for the first time this last week. I'm thankful for his ministry at Faith Outreach. Lord, I pray first for his marriage. I pray that that is, is a proving ground and a, um, a place where what he is preaching, the journey that he's on, is being lived out. I pray that his wife sees transformation in him pray that he is washing his wife with the word and that he is shepherding his family well for your glory. Lord, I pray that each week that you're arresting him with the scandal of the gospel and that as he stands and delivers or as he shepherds in his study, as he counsels, as he guides and encourages, that all of it is driven by awe and wonder and marvel. Lord, I pray for this church and for faith outreach, Lord, I pray that they are enjoying you. I pray, too, that whatever way possible that we can serve alongside this church, uh, whether it's an official way or an unofficial, if it's sharing a cubicle or our workspace or a job site, that we cheer for each other and that we want your great name to be enjoyed in that people. We want that place to not have seating capacity for all the people that you draw. We beg for that, Lord, for your glory, for your namesake. Lord, in these next few minutes... I pray that you'll prepare our hearts to sit and stand, kneel, to camp out for a little while on holy ground where we hear your son pray to you. Lord, I pray that our hearts can be arrested with that crazy reality that this was even prayed, that it was even prayed out loud that John even had the wherewithal to record what he heard that our early church fathers thought to include the sweet gospel of John and this sweet prayer in our Bibles, this canon, in our language that we have sitting in our laps. I pray that we will be arrested with those realities and that these next few minutes that we spend with you will be effective, will be attentive, will be engaged, and that our hearts will race at the reality that we are engaging God the Son speaking to God the Father. 
what rich truth we have access to this morning. We turn this time over to you, Lord, for your glory and for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> John chapter 17. <clears throat> begin with reading the prayer. Prayed on the eve of his cross. Out loud, thankfully. Our plan, if you've been here for a period of time, you know this. If you haven't, you need to know that our plan for swimming this ocean of John chapter 17 is by the petitions. There are five requests in this chapter. And it's just sort of our plan. It's not the only plan for swimming this ocean, but it's our plan. And we're on the third petition. And I'm going to bring out those petitions as we go through. Every time I read it, I like to try and escort myself into this context and just imagine yourself being one of the disciples that's sitting there, the 11 at this point, because one has left the table. And it was a shocker for everybody. And they're grieved over it. Judas didn't wear a black hat and a scowl, apparently, alias Sam Cobra. He was one of them, and they were shocked by his departure, and they were grieved over it. They're reeling from one who's walked with them for three years, leaving the table. They're reeling from the reality that it appears that the one that they've forsaken all to follow is going to now lead them. Imagine yourself being a disciple, having forsaken all and followed Christ for three years, and this is what you're hearing from him. Just a week earlier, Jerusalem cheered for him, and you thought, man, I want to sit on his right, and the other one thought, I'll sit on his left. They're picking out their robes that they're going to wear when he's appointed king. Consider where they are on this eve, this night, as they hear him pray these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Here's the first request, and it's a plea. It's an imperative in the Greek language, a begging. Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Knowing that God is jealous for his own name, we would hope that he would plead for his own glory. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And here's the second request, a petition. Holy Father, pleading this, keep them in your name. A plea for the protection of his people. Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them... I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here's the third request and where we're finishing up today. Sanctify them, a plea. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate or sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Fourth request, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's where we'll be going next week, Lord willing. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you love me. And the fifth request. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Last week, we began really the first part of a two-part conversation. This is the second part. I'm always nervous about doing a part two sermon, but I have to hope and pray that the Lord can bridge the gap. I like to, um, knowing that some of us may not have been here last week, I would like to just take a moment and sort of lay a foundation of where we landed last week so that we can climb into the second part of this conversation. We focused primarily on verse 17 last week. This morning, we will finish up with 18 and 19. There's a singular thought here in these three verses that have to do with something, a word that's very common in Christian language, Christian settings, the word sanctification. Last week, we focused on verse 17, where he pleads, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Last week, we considered, first of all, what does this word mean? Three aspects that we draw, we, we drew out, past tense, last week, to holify. Father, hallowed be your name. That's the same word, to holify, to cleanse, as the husband cleanses his wife with the word, washes his wife with the word. That's the same picture there, to cleanse. And third, to be set apart, like a Louisville slugger is sanctified as it's stroking a ball out of the park, as it's coming into alignment with what its creator made it to be. That's a picture of sanctification. All three of those aspects come together when we're dealing with this word sanctification, to holify, to cleanse, and to set apart. We considered also last week that this work is an already and not yet Oftentimes in Christian settings, there's this picture that's sort of a systematic theology understanding, which is not a bad thing, that justification is the beginning point of the journey of faith, sanctification is the middle point, and glorification is the end point. I like systems, and I teach systems sometimes. 
But I don't want systems to replace what a passage is clearly saying and what realities are exposed directly from the text that tell us that sanctification is an already event and it's a not yet event. There are passages where sanctification has been already secured in the life of the believer. References in our Bible where it's a done deal. When Christ was crucified and risen, that we have already been sanctified. That's good news. If you're feeble and frail in this journey of sanctification as I am, that should be good news, that there's an already to sanctification. But there's also an aspect of not yet. There's a process and a journey of sanctification. It's ongoing, and it's already. The third thing we considered last week is that the agent of sanctification is not you. You cannot and do not and will not sanctify yourself. There's an agent of sanctification, and that agent is the Holy Spirit, we found out last week. And that's not to imply that there's not effort involved. Our staff has a passage that we are really kind of have our hands around this coming year in Colossians chapter 1. Don't turn there, just listen to it, because it's a great picture of what we're talking about here. Paul, in regards to his role in the church and what he's doing in the church, he says, I toil, struggling with all his power that powerfully works within me. I toil is the picture of effort, yet he's struggling within the power of God all the while that powerfully works within him. That's a great picture of the already and not yet coming into play where God has already done the work of sanctification in your life, and he's the one that continues to sanctify you as you rest in his work all the while toiling. If you're confused with that, good, because it's kind of confusing. You work within his finished work, and you work within his continuing work. And the fourth thing we considered last week is that the Word of God is the tool of sanctification. It's not a tool. It's not one of many in God's arsenal of sanctification. It is the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to wash the bride of Christ just as it's what the husband uses to cleanse his wife, it's what Christ uses, or the Holy Spirit specifically, to cleanse the church. That should give us a perspective that says, man, what I want to be about needs to be word-centered. It's not just a peripheral reality. It's not something I want to tap into when I have a need. It's my very food. If the Word of God is the thing that he's using to cleanse his people, I need to be sitting and drinking and tasting and seeing through the exposure and the engagement of the Word of God. It's what he's using to sanctify his people. It's not fellowship. It's not family time. It's not entertainment. It's not fun time. It's not um, a lot of great things. It's sanctification takes place through the Word of God. That should make a bunch of hungry urgent people that are ready to engage his word. I should make a bunch of shepherds that say that they love their families, um, understanding that your ministry is a word-centric ministry, or it's no ministry at all. That by definition, it's got to be word-centric. Now, verse 18, I told you this is kind of a three-passage section here that all has to do with sanctification. Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is where we're going today. And really on on, uh, verse 18 and 19. And I'll tell you right now, I want to kind of give you a a map before I continue. This is really kind of a sermon and a half. And some of you are going to be like, man, I have hard enough time hanging with one sermon. 
It's going to be a sermon and a half because it's too much for two parts or part three. And it's too little to just put aside and say we won't bother with that. Verses 18 and 19. Here's the plan for these next few minutes. I want to unpack verse 18 and I want to apply it in three ways. And then we're going to unpack verse 19. And then we're going to have the Lord's Supper and continue in worship. Okay? So that's the plan. Verse 18, unpack and apply in three ways. And then verse 19, unpack and worship. Okay, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I need to confess to you that as I've been studying this passage, really for months at this point, the whole prayer here, these two verses, I didn't really see a connection. Sometimes Jesus shifts gears. And he changes thought and direction and um, um, almost at times where you can't figure out where he's going. And it's kind of a surprise thought where you, like our translator, might put a paragraph there. And I'm looking at this passage and I'm thinking, well, why didn't the translator put a paragraph there? Because he seems to shift gears. He's been talking about sanctification and now he talks about being sent. They seem to be two different things. And I'm confessing this to you. I spent a large part of the last couple of months as I'm studying this passage wrestling with this. Why is that thing stuck right here as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world and then I connected it to the next verse and then I saw it like a cheeseburger and I'm going to explain to you what I'm talking about I'm putting it in terms cheeseburger verse 19 and for their sake I consecrate that's the same word for sanctify you may have a different version than ESV that says sanctify there I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So the bread here in this passage is verse 17 and 19. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. That's the bottom or top bun. Doesn't matter. Other bun. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified. And the meat in the middle of this picture of sanctification is being sent. And I'm realizing that they're intertwined and that they go together. This thing that I've so disconnected to the point where I can't even understand why that verse is next to the other verse, that they go together, that being sent and being sanctified go together, and it makes this big cheeseburger of a meal that we can't view one properly without viewing the other. Now, I told Scott before we went in here, I said, man, last week was weird. Because I don't feel like I did anything different last week than I did the week before that I'm doing this week. And yet I had so much feedback about last week. People that the Holy Spirit just really communicated to them. And last week was about sanctification by itself. We didn't talk about being sent. I confessed to Scott, and I'll confess to y'all because you know that I put my stuff out there sometimes. I was wrestling all week with this thing like, oh, what did I do this last week? I better do that again. (laughs) This pressure, and I'm putting that pressure aside. And I realize that some of it might have to do with our desire to engage something that seems to be about us. Sanctification seems to be pretty eucentric. That's not a bad thing. But then when we connect it to being sent, then we go, oh, it's got some aspects there that I hadn't really connected to. And my hope and prayer is that you're as excited about this sermon as you were last week. That's been my hope and prayer all week is that you would be excited about the fact that sanctification and being sent are intertwined, they are inextricably linked, and that you can't properly understand sanctification without understanding being sent. And you can't understand being sent without being sanctified. I want to show you that they go together. 
Turn to John chapter 10. <clears throat> this isn't just a rare, weird passage over in John chapter 17 where maybe they should have put a paragraph mark there or maybe start a new paragraph. Maybe not. Maybe I'm reading something into it. Let's look at some other passages. John chapter 10, verse 36. I'll give you a little bit of context. Jesus here is interacting with Jews that are ready to uh, stone him. He's engaging them because they believe that he's blasphemous in some of the things that he's saying. And in verse 36, I just want you to listen to how he refers to himself. In verse 36, he says, Do you say of him whom the Father, he's speaking of himself, whom the Father consecrated, that's the same word that's used over there in John chapter 17 for himself, sanctified. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. Those things go together. We don't even need to really deal with the rest of the context. That's not the point. The point is how Christ is referring to himself. He's referring to himself as the sanctified and the sent because in Christ's mind, they go together. It seems that they are intertwined in the mind of our Lord. Turn to Acts chapter 13. If you were here a couple weeks ago, this will be a familiar passage to you. This is a, sort of a midsection in the time that we spent together a couple weeks ago. And it was a sweet, sweet way to end our examination of Paul. Where Paul comes to Christ on the Damascus Road. Or in other words, Christ comes to him on the Damascus Road. Paul becomes a believer and convert. And then he serves sort of half-cocked, which I've never seen before. And there's sort of this context of confusion and chaos but then the church gets involved and here in chapter 13 is sort of the uh, sending point for Paul and I want you to see this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13 now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas Simeon who was called Niger Lucius of Cyrene Manaen, a member of the court of uh, Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, watched the agent, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. If you write in your Bibles, that would be an appropriate place to write, to circle set apart and circle sent and make a line together or line between those two circles because they go together. I spent my entire Christian journey up until about a month ago studying John chapter 17, seeing a disconnect between those two. And now I'm seeing sanctification and being sent go together. They are intertwined. And that's not just for Paul and Barney. It's not just for the 11 over here in John chapter 17 who are sitting with him either. Because what does he pray if you've been paying attention here in verse 20 in John chapter 17? He says, I do not ask for these 11 only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Sanctification and being sent is not just for the 11. It's not just for Paul and Barney. It's for those who will believe in him through their word. Guess who that is? That's you. That's us. Sanctification 
and being sent are intertwined. As the Father sent the Son, or set the, part, the Son apart and sent Him, so the Son asks that we will be set apart and sent. I think the reason I saw these as separate is because I've always seen being sent as something that happens to foreign missionaries. It happened to us. You may not know that. Christy and I were sent to Greenville as missionaries seven years ago. Yes, to Greenville. Missionaries. You were born then. That's right. (laughs) For me, I've always compartmentalized this notion of being sent, that that's for mission work. And that's for people that go somewhere, and I've never seen the two of them together. It's always been separate. And the reality is it's something that he's called all of us to, just as he's called all of us to this work of sanctification. Sanctification and being sent go together. The problem is that we can tragically live in a mission field unaware that we've been sent to. We can be about the work of drinking in sanctification and all that's involved in that, yet never see ourselves as sent If this message has done anything for me, it's helped us to see you and see myself and see my family as the sanctified sent. You see that? Now, we're going to deal with three applications of this big truth. As as we engage these three applications, I want you to just really consider, have you ever seen them going together, being sanctified and being sent? Have you ever seen yourself as the sent? Consider that question as we deal with these three different applications. Go back to John chapter 17. Here's the first application of this truth that we are the sanctified sent. John chapter 17 verse 13. Man, this is good medicine right here. This is seriously good medicine. I spend a lot of time either counseling or longing to counsel some folks. (laughs) And I'm not talking about folks that are just messed up, because I'm messed up. I'm talking about folks that are hurting. And this is good medicine for the hurting. John chapter 17, verse 13. I wrestle with why Christ prayed this out loud. Like, why? He didn't have to. Would it be effective if it wasn't out loud? Well, yeah. If God the Son is going to ask God the Father or something, it's going to get done. If the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, then I know the prayer of a son to his father, our God the Son, to God the Father is going to get it done. So why did he do it out loud? Because all prayers don't have to be out loud, right? So I asked that question, and in verse 13, I got an answer to that. But now I'm coming to you, Father. It's in the middle of his prayer. And these things I speak in the world. I always wonder if Jesus opened his eyes. I don't know that he even prayed with his eyes closed. That's sort of a cultural thing. If he opened his eyes and kind of peeked at the disciples like, y'all listening? He's looking around. I know I'm in the middle of a prayer, but I want to make sure you hear what I'm about to say. I speak these things in the world, as in this prayer, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Why did he pray this out loud? So the hearers could find joy in what they're hearing. It's joy instruction. Man, the notion of John chapter 17 being the instrument that people use for counseling, I think it is. It'd be an appropriate one. 
You have a joyless life? Let's consider the joy of connecting sanctification with being sent. One thing that I hear from folks that are sent to the far corners of the world, I hear sadness because they're having to leave some people that they've connected to, but I hear joy because they're anxious to see God work. I hear joy as I hear burden for the far corners of the field. I heard it in the Hucks. I've heard it through the Fields family with the Goins. Joy and excitement goes with being sent. There's joy in walking in your sending. And that's not just for foreign missionaries. Here's where this fine purchase for the, for the joyless. If your life lacks joy, it may be because you're looking for sanctification, but you're opting out of being sent. It may be because everything that you're about is just your own personal sanctification. And you haven't connected it that you're being equipped to be sent. I guarantee God's not going to let you get away with finding joy if everything in your life is just about your own spiritual sanctification. He's not going to let you get away with finding joy in that. That is a joyless walk because it terminates on you. It is joyless. I promise. This shows up in practice. I bounced this off Christy because I I wanted to share with her two different things I'm addressing this morning that could be soapboxes, but they're not. I want to disarm anybody that might feel like, oh, he's sending me a zinger from the pulpit. I've done that, and I've been convicted about that. Years ago, it's been some time, I think, since I've sent a zinger from the pulpit. A zinger from the pulpit is when you need to say something to somebody, but you don't have the guts to say it to them. So you kind of send them a little sideways zinger from the pulpit. And nobody knows what you're talking about except you and them. Man, that's a temptation in preaching. I I promise you. That's not what this will be on these two things that I deal with. I promise. So I'm disarming it that I'm not upset about anything. (laughs) No zingers in my quiver. This is just connecting reality to what we're seeing. This shows up in practice where sanctification and sin are disconnected and where we seem to be gravitating, the people of God seem to gravitate towards sanctification and yet pull away from the notion of being sent. The last few years, we've been doing, doing something called mobile worship. And mobile worship, once a month, two or three times in the fall, two or three times in the spring, we mobilize to a different part of town and just worship, do exactly what we're doing right now. And associated with that journey to a different part of town is the day before or the Wednesday before, depending on the time of year, we make visits in the neighborhood surrounding that location. If it's the civic center or whatever, we'll visit the neighborhood around it. And in the few years that we've been doing this, I've found that it's a whole lot easier to get the church together for a fellowship or for a potluck or for a marriage seminar than it is for this door-to-door introduction to, hey, come worship with us. And I promise you, that's not a zinger for anybody. If you've never participated in that, you're like, oh, man, he's beating me up again. That's not what this is, I promise you. It's just an observation. It's a whole lot easier to get people together for something that seems to be sort of sanctifying-centric than having to do with being 
sent. It seems to be our nature to gravitate toward those sort of things that have to do more with sanctification. I think this can show up, this disconnect between sanctification and being sent can show up in a busy church. It can show up in a busy church that's so programmed and busy that it's not faithful in being sent at all. I'm not condemning all churches that have lots of activities, but I'm saying it's possible for this to happen. There's a paradigm of busyness, and there's a notion that sanctification is done through very self-focused and intense study. I was thinking about some of the acronyms that come to mind. BSF, ABF, BSU, CBS... I was thinking about some of the different ministries out there. Men's Fraternity, uh, Financial Peace University. Uh, one of the studies that I went through a long time ago was the Mind of Christ study. There is nothing, nothing in the world wrong with any of those things. Hear me, because I mentioned them. I'm not dissing them. There's nothing in the world wrong with those ABF, BSF, BSU, CBS, all those things, they are Beth Moore studies. Those are good, man. Dine on those things. But there's the reality we can be guilty of hunkering down and parsing Greek verbs and collecting them like trophies and never walking in the reality of what that Greek verb meant. We can slap them on the wall and say, look what I learned today. I can't wait for next week. I learned something new and I'll slap it on the wall and I never walk in what I've heard. Man, please parse those verbs because there's greatness in those verbs. But don't collect them like trophies and not walk in them. We can be very busy in sanctification and not obedient in being sent. It's very easy to do if we don't see them intertwined and linked together. There's joy in seeing what we do here on Sunday morning as equipping for Monday morning. There's joy in seeing this as equipment for the week. And there's a bankruptcy in seeing it as a terminal event where you just collect trophies and gather some facts. Now, the second thing having to do with sanctification and being sent, going together. As sanctification is common and daily, your sending is quite common and daily. Realize your presence in a family, yes, even your family, is ordained. Realize that your presence in a job, yes, even that job, is ordained. Are your presence in a neighborhood or your presence in a group of friends is ordained. We know that our God works all things according to the kind intention of his will. We can trust that the people that are in your lives and the people whose lives you are in is ordained. They're no mere circumstance for the people of God. He's got his fingerprints all over those details. You're there by design. You're the appointed truth speaker in that context. You're the ordained Christ enjoyer in that context that I promise you will seem common and daily. You and a couple ladies, you ladies, you and a couple ladies get together with your kids 
at Aunt Shars and say, man, we got a beautiful afternoon. Let's go out to Aunt Shars. Do you see that that trip to Aunt Shars is ordained? Do you connect that it's time to hang out with the wives and play with the kids, which is greatness? Or do you connect that that sanctification is also connected to your being sent to Aunt Shars Park? That you may be there for a purpose to meet someone that God has ordained, that he's given you a divine appointment to engage do you connect sanctification with being sent? They go together, and I promise you, as sanctification is daily and common, with a common book preached by a common preacher on a common Sunday, first day of the week, in a common little building on the south side of town, just as sanctification is common, yes, that. Being sent is common and daily. And it's uber-ordinary, that's what he's ordained it to be. So that guy that you work with, that you're thinking, surely he's not talking about that guy. Yes, I am. I'm talking about that guy. That job that you work in, I'm talking about that job. That setting that you're thinking, no, he's not talking about that setting. Yes, I am. I'm talking about that setting. I'm talking about that neighbor. Yes, that neighbor. There's no coincidence that you live by that neighbor. You've been sent into that context. You're the ordained truth speaker, the ordained Christ enjoyer at that school. Yes, that school. At that family gathering, not that family gathering. Yes, that family gathering. In the middle of that family drama, no, not that family drama. Yes, that family drama. You've been sent into that drama as the truth speaker. And the Christ enjoyer, do you connect sanctification with being sent? They go together. Here's the other potential soapbox that I promise you is not. It's just a very real opportunity for us to see what this could be. There's a paradigm in North American Christianity. I can't speak for all Christianity everywhere, but at least in my observation of North American Christianity, there's a paradigm of programs and outreach events. We've wrestled with it in the last eight years. Is What are we to do? If we had a program for every time somebody had an idea about a program or outreach event, our bulletin would be a booklet. It would be. I mean, we hear it all the time. And that's not bad. Not condemning programs or outreach events. But the thought is, that goes along with this paradigm, is that you're not really burdened for your community if you don't have community-directed programs and outreach events. This burden would be reflected if you did have a burden for your community. It would be reflected in a bulletin that gives church members a sort of buffet of ways to reach their community. A buffet of ways to walk in their being sent. I bet some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Christian, this is not the only church Christian I've ever been in. And I'm not condemning, again, those outreach events are a big bulletin. God can use those instruments. God can use those corporate engagements of your community. He really can. I don't want for a moment to suggest that those aren't good things. But the potential problem is that whole congregations can find themselves waiting on the church leadership and staff to organize and plan and fund occasions to walk as the sent, not realizing that they live and work in that opportunity to walk as the sent. We've been sent into an ordinary and common and daily context. 
There is nothing in the world wrong with the church working together to engage the community and event. Nothing. Hear me. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But it is not the zenith of faithfulness. It is not the zenith of maturity for a church to have a service and outreach buffet. The only picture that I see biblically where a church is working together, our whole church is working together to gather funds for the poor church, and I mean poor, poverty poor church in Jerusalem. I don't see it. Man, I'm looking for it. It'll give, me, give us elders some direction. And that, okay, yeah, we want to be about these things, or do we not? There's a distinct absence. And I don't want to build a theologist because of an absence either. Because I don't see pianos in our Bible. We can say, well, there's no pianos in the New Testament, so let's not have any. I'm not saying let's not have programs or outreach events. But I'm saying they are not the pinnacle or the zenith of maturity and faithfulness for us to have a big fat bulletin full of opportunities for you to engage your community. What seems to be the norm is people being equipped for the work of service by those gifts given to the church, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher to go walk in Monday, to go walk in that relationship, to go walk in that setting, in that neighborhood, to walk into the market as an out loud and aromatic people of God. That seems to be normative. First and second Timothy really in some ways are the guide to how to do church. Paul's writing to Timothy, a church planter and evangelist, and he's given him the scoop on here, here's what I want you to do as you're starting these churches. Appoint elders, qualified elders, appoint deacons, and preach the word in season and out. Do the work of evangelist. Well, Timothy, that's a pretty lean bulletin. Is that it? Yeah. Elder, well, know your people. Shepherd the flock. Deacon, well. And in eldering and deaconing, the church will be the pillar and buttress of the truth and people will see the greatness of God among his people. And by the way, preach the word in season and out and do the work of an evangelist. There's a severe absence of this notion of this corporate engagement, Timothy, don't. He doesn't say, Timothy, go put together these out- outreach events so everybody can be walk, can walk in something that is organized and or- ordained, I use loosely, by the church staff. What I do see in Timothy, and listen to this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says, I desire, Paul's writing to Timothy, just listen, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I desire that in every place men should be lifting holy hands, should be praying, and should be lifting these hands without anger or quarreling. And the picture that I see biblically is of the people of God being the people of God in every place. That's being sent. If being sent goes with sanctification, then you're equipped and sent into Monday. We're sanctified and sent as a people into divine appointments. That is the cream. While there's nothing wrong with working together on a project or a ministry, as we do on mobile worship, the cream is the people of God going out equipped to worship and wonder in every place with that guy 
in that family gathering, in that family drama. That's the cream. Sanctification is common and daily. Sending is common and daily. Third thing, I want to speak to shepherds. Now, shepherds are primarily the fathers or husbands of the families, but not exclusively. I know in some cases we have some single moms, or we have some spiritually single moms whose husband is alive but not believing. So I want to speak to the shepherds on this third point, and I want you to see something, shepherds, that you are sent to your family first. Not only, but you are sent to your family first. For those of you that may not have a family yet, you might be thinking this doesn't pertain to me. You're being equipped for that right now. Pay attention. You are sent to your family first. Remember one of our main passages last week from Ephesians is this picture of the husband washing his wife with the word. As a picture of what Christ is doing with the bride of Christ, preparing the, Christ, or the, the bride for Christ's return. Remember that picture of this husband washing his wife with the word. That is an illustration of what Christ has done and is doing with the church but it's not an airy metaphor. It's not just an idea that just is illustrated maybe by the husband and wife who think the thought. This picture is lived out with real husbands. You jokers that I know, real husbands cleansing your wife with the word. It's lived out by you ladies submitting to that joker cleansing you with the word. Real men and real women, real ordinary and common folk washing and submitting to washing on Tuesday in your ordinary kitchen or your ordinary den in ordinary and common families. Think about the fact that one of the pictures of sanctification is the picture of a husband washing his wife with the word. That happens at home, men. Shepherds, single moms, spiritually single moms, that happens at home as you cleanse and wash your children with the word. Shepherds, you need to see that you are sent home first. You've got to see a priority in your sending to the families he's made us us stewards of. I want you to consider this. Scott brought this up the other day as we were talking about this. If I lead others to Christ as an elder of Cross Point, let's say you don't see much of Ben around 10510 Woodland Drive. You go to visit Christy and the kids, and Ben's gone because Ben's going door-to-door in Greenville sharing Christ, man. Or Ben's busting up in your business sharing Christ with your workmates. Let's say Ben turns into soul winner extraordinaire. Like Billy Graham, walking around everywhere. Come on down. People just coming to Christ everywhere. Imagine that that happens, yet I neglect my family. And I'm quoting from 1 Timothy not managing my own household well. Guess what happens to me? I'm disqualified as an elder. Sit the bench, boy. Sit the bench, soul winner. It starts at home, shepherds. That's how important my ministry is at home, that I am DQ'd if I'm about winning souls and sharing Christ with others, yet my family's not getting first or dibs. And guess what? Your situation is no different. 
That's not just for the elder. Your situation is no different. If you have not and are not sowing into the lives of your kids and you want to contract that out with maybe an extravagant children's ministry or insert what you might contract it out with, if you don't see that as your primary responsibility and as you as the primary deliverer of those goods, if husbands or you are not washing your wives with the word, how can you hope to lead others into being washed? Paul said, If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? We are stewards with our families, and we should see them as our first field. There are lots of ministers that sacrifice their family on the altar of ministry. I think that's why Paul is writing Timothy. They're DQ'd, buddy, because that's your primary field. It's your first field. Let me put it to you that way. It's your first field. Priority. If we don't see them as our first field, sowing into them, washing them with the water of the word, we've got to see shepherds that you are sent into that context. And that hasn't, doesn't have to be done at the expense of the community. Here's the beauty. I'm going to share a passage with you. Just listen. Psalm 96. I read this psalm, I think, for the first time sitting outside the Simmons apartment in Germany where I first met Jeff and Pam. I sat outside just reading Psalms and just happen upon this Psalm 96. Listen to this. Just listen. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Watch the verbs. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Collect them. Sing. Declare his glory among the nations. Declare his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord. The third verb. O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his court. Worship, there's another verb. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, another verb, the Lord reigns. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Yet another verb. And families seem to be the agent of all these things. Singing, declaring, ascribing, worshiping, saying, letting. What more beautiful evangelistic instrument is it than a family that's on fire for the Lord and enjoying him and part of a people of God? Man. Being sent does not and should not happen at the expense of your family because that's your first field that you're sent into. Shepherds, do you view yourself as being equipped for Monday in your den? That's where it's got to find purchase first. Not only, but first. Do you see your sanctification as intertwined with being sent. Jesus sees them as intertwined. You need to see them as intertwined. Now, for the half sermon, turn to verse 19, chapter 17. Just because it's a half sermon doesn't mean it's important. Because this really is the means for the whole rest of this, everything that we've looked at regarding sanctification. What, what is said in this verse is really the fuel for everything else that's done in this cheeseburger. 
Verse 19, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This word I told you, consecrate, in the English Standard Version, is translated sanctify, or sanctified, in the New American Standard. I think NIV also says, I don't know what NIV says. But the word there in the original language is the same word that he's prayed over there in verse 17, sanctify them. It's the same word, hagiazo. It's the same word that he's begged for in us. He says, I've done to myself. I suspect that the ESV translators use the word consecrate here because they're not comfortable with the notion of Christ needing to be holified or cleansed. So consecration would have more to do with being set apart. Now, then you would have to ask the question, why was he baptized? He certainly does not need to be holified or cleansed, but he was baptized. One of the earliest pictures we have of the language of consecration is in the book of Exodus and in uh, the early journey of the Exodus. But I want you to look first in Leviticus chapter 1. I'm going to show you two snapshots, and then you're going to understand why this is so important. Leviticus chapter 1. I say in the Exodus because Leviticus also took place during that time period. I'm going to deal just with the washing aspect of sanctification, just with being washed. There'll be a little bit of other holification and consecration, but mainly just with washed, just for the sake of simplicity. I want you to watch what is washed, who's being washed, and then we're going to look at what Christ has said, I consecrate myself in light of what we're seeing over here in Exodus and Leviticus. Okay, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9. This is speaking of the offering, this uh, ram or goat, or depending on what's being offered here. In verse 9, its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In verse 13 of the same chapter, its entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering, is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This picture of an offering as being washed is something that we need to see a connection to, and you will in a moment. Know that offerings were to be consecrated or washed before they're offered to the Lord. Now, it's not just the offering, but it's the offerer. As well. Turn to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28, verse 40. For Aaron's sons, these are the priests. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Something that happened not only for the offering as it's being washed and consecrated and set apart, but the offerer is to be washed and set apart and consecrated. Look in chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them, these priests, to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. 
You shall bring Aaron. Think about baptism as I read this passage. Think about your baptism. Think about Sydney's baptism from last week. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Does that add new meaning to your baptism? Royal priesthood? It should. Then you take the garments and put put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breast breast piece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on on his head and anoint him. Just put a little side thought in there about Mary anointing Christ at Bethany with the nard, anointing the high priest as he's about to offer the final sacrifice. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. It picks up in verse 19, more details. There's a bull and two rams. Here's what happens. The first, or the first ram is to be washed and offered as a burnt offering. In verse 19, here's what happens with the other ram. Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altars. Then you shall take part of the blood that's on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holified. Holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Now, the reason I went through that drama there of reading those passages and all that crazy detail about washing the offerings and washing the priests, because I want you to see both of those in view as Christ says, I consecrate myself. Both are in view because he's both the sacrifice and the priest making the sacrifice. Man, if that doesn't make your heart sing, you need to go back and climb into the Exodus. You need to take in the drama and the details of the washing and the cleansing and the offering and the aroma and all those things that they have to go through for worship and realize as Christ says, I consecrate myself. The high priest is saying, I'm about to consecrate an offering that I have cleansed, i.e. baptism, and that I've been prepared as the cleansed priest to offer. He is both offering and priest. Hebrews 10, 11 says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, i.e. himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. No more busy priesthood. No more lambs and goats and bulls being sacrificed everywhere. The final sacrifice has been made. When he says, I consecrate myself, man, those are treasured words. And the way that verse finishes, really the verse in whole, he says, I do this for their sake.
the ministry of Crosspoint, I have thought at times and wondered at times if we're short on communicating God's love for us. One thing we do, and I've had a very recent conversation about this. One thing I think that the Lord has really put on our plate is that he loves himself. That's a new concept in contemporary church. That he loves himself because he's worthy of that. He's jealous for his own glory. The motive of the gospel is for the glory of his grace. He's at the center of the gospel. But these words, for their sake, should be enjoyed. He did this for their sake. And it's not just the 11. It's for our sake. He did this out of love. He loves himself via us. Love fueled this work and it's gushing all over us. I listened to a recent sermon by John Piper and I would paraphrase his thoughts on this is that he made much of us so that we can make much of him. He did this for our sake and how the rest of this verse ends up. That, that word that in Greek is a henna clause, in order that. He consecrated himself for our sake in order that he could earn sanctification for us, that we could be sanctified in truth. He did what we couldn't do, and the motive of that was love. That's rich. If you feel unloved, that's something to embrace and something to enjoy. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. In order that. Do you view yourself as a living sacrifice in Greenville? That's an important question. Do you, do you view yourself as both sanctified and sent? He was consecrated, sanctified, for your sake. And he was consecrated and sanctified in order that you might be. Let's walk in what we've heard as we're sent into Jordan, as we're sent into Greenville, shepherds, as we're sent into Monday. Let's pray. Lord, I... Uh, at the ending of this message, I don't pray for something grand or spectacular. I pray for something ordinary and daily. Lord, I pray as a result of this message of seeing sanctification and being sent going together, I pray that we can see that neighbor or that family drama or that family that lives in our house or that work scenario as a place that we're being sent into. Lord, I pray that that can be our primary focus as we serve as the sent of being that ordained Christ worshiper, that ordained and equipped truth speaker in that context. Lord, I pray a result of this message is that we'll have a new set of eyes for Monday 
and our cubicle or our workspace or our job site or our den. Lord, I pray as much as we enjoy sanctification that we can find the joy in being sent. Lord, I know my own tendency to focus on myself and to get stuck in my own problems, to languish in those settings. Lord, I pray personally for myself and for my family and for this church that you would drag us outside of ourselves to be sent and spent. Lord, I pray that our families will be the ones who ascribe and sing and declare and worship. Lord, I pray for those who don't have a family yet that they're being equipped for that. And I pray for those who may not necessarily see themselves as part of a family, that they'll see themselves as part of this family. Lord, I'm thankful for your word that shapes us and directs us. I pray that we cannot be trophy collectors, but that we can walk in what we've heard. Pray for a new set of eyes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In a few minutes, we're going to take the supper. And uh, I just want to really take a moment to recount over this past week. And, I, and my prayer for you is that um, over this past week, you've enjoyed the already and the not yet. And the truth in that. Uh, the, the peace of the already and the hope of the not yet. Um, I look back over my last week and it's a, it can be a common and normal week for me. And it seems like it's full of minefields with every kind of opportunity uh, in the workplace. You know, at L3, we're coming off uh, where we've just gotten our reviews. And I'm telling you, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I mean, it's a hard thing when people tell you you didn't do so good or... Uh, and you know it's tough. The economy's tough, and uh, it's a it's a hard year. And I tell you, if all I had to offer is my advice or something I read in a book on business or pleasing your boss, I'd be lost, and I would feel like it was on me. But when I can talk about the already and the not yet, and the truth of that, when we have truth to offer. I'm eager. I was eager to get here this morning because I need something for next week. I needed to hear a sanctified scent so that I see the opportunities from moment to moment where we've been given this gift of being able to offer truth because we're dining on it every week. Listen, listen to Romans 5. This is where I kept going this week because I'm at, at work uh, with friends, with family. I, I had a week that could have just been or looked like a week of minefields. Just trying not to step and blow something up. You know, try to speak into something and, uh, you know, be real careful with what that is. But listen to this. I mean, in hopelessness, in desperation, in brokenness, in, in the middle of suffering, what can we offer? Romans 5 says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith and already, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the truth is, we can offer peace in a crazy world. If we're looking at worldly passions and worldly perspective, we're going to tell everybody everything they're doing wrong and how you need to get it right. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And listen, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You hear the not yet? We have a hope. We know we're walking in this flesh, and it's hard day to day. But we have opportunity as the sanctified scent to speak truth. His word, that's what we're sharing. That's why we're dining on this every week. I hope you're eager and urgent to come and hear it and to sit with your brothers and sisters from week to week and dine on that thing, chew on that so that you're ready to share it. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Have you heard something that can help you with that? If you told somebody, rejoice in your sufferings, does that sound like it makes sense? It doesn't make sense outside of the truth of God. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, we just offer up truth, and the Holy Spirit teaches. We just offer it up. We're not the teacher. We don't have to convince. We don't have to work all that out. We just offer it. We hear it. We dine on it. We know it. We store it in our heart. It informs us. It lifts us up when we're hopeless. We have this hope. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of a finished work. And already. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink and drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat and, the, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The supper is for those of you in Christ with an already and a not yet. And that not yet is sure. It's as sure as the finished work of Christ. And we're on a journey of understanding what that is and growing in that truth. That's our sanctification.